The flight deck is made possible by the generous donors supporting the Museum of Flight. You can support this podcast and the Museum of Flight's other initiatives across the United States and the world by visiting museumofflight.org slash podcast. Hello and welcome to The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I'm your host, Sean Mobley. Now, if you grew up here in the U.S. and had a passing interest in space, there's a really good chance that at some point you launched a model rocket. And also a good chance that the rocket had the name Estes on it. Today's podcast is an interview with Vern Estes himself, the founder of Estes Industries, taken from his oral history where he talks about his early assignment creating a machine that would create the tiny rocket engines that power the modeling hobby. When you consider the explosive nature of the engines, creating a machine that didn't blow up the whole plant was harder than you might have realized. Vern was interviewed at the Museum of Flight by Bill Stein, who you will hear throughout the episode as well. And with that, I'll turn it over to Vern and Bill. Well, it, it was an ambitious project, particularly since I didn't have any idea as to how to go about doing it. And uh, Harry um, uh, did provide me with some information on uh, the basic construction of the model rocket motors. Mm-hmm. And uh, so with that, and then I began to conduct experiments to find out what it's going to take to make satisfactory motors. And <clears throat> then, um, after I learned a few things about it, I... Um, give, give me some examples of what you learned. Was it things like um, the amount of pressure necessary to compact the propellant sufficiently so that it wouldn't blow up? Was it dwell time? What were the types of things? Because yeah. this was all uncharted, unknown territory. Yeah, it was totally unknown to me. And uh, the uh, black powder that we used was uh, uh, normal black powder. We bought it from uh, DuPont, and uh, it would be compressed into the uh, uh, cylindrical tubes. And um, so some of the things I had to learn was uh, what size of a nozzle and uh, what, what it was going to take to compress that powder so it would burn from end to end through the tube rather than exploding Mm -hmm. and uh, how we would uh, add a component for uh, time delay and an injection charge and and, uh, there were a whole series of things we had to learn and so it required building some uh, test equipment so we could test the engines that we were making and see if they would uh, how they performed and then making adjustments and so on then after I built I had built some uh, a hand press, so to speak, of, of, and then in order to get it in production, decided to build a machine called Mabel. And uh, Mabel was the first automated uh, uh, equipment to manufacture model rocket engines. And uh, I didn't really have much uh, money or anything to build it with, so many of the components and things came from a junkyard. And um, so 
it took me uh, several months to build the equipment. And um, so uh, finally, Mabel's ready to, to work and uh, was able to start turning out motors at uh, the rate of about one every five and a half seconds or so. And that turned out to be more than model missiles could uh, use at the time. And so later on, we decided then the uh, following up that uh, to go actually into the we mail order business. You and your wife, Glita? Me and my wife, Glita, right. Okay. Yeah. Right. So we were more or less alone at the time uh, doing this. I had some help that I did hire. but. Uh, so can, can you tell us, do you remember why Mabel? What's the significance of your choice of the name Mabel? Well, it was um, after the name Mabel came from a, a, a guy that I had hired to operator. And uh, um, he had known, and, and the machine was a bit stubborn sometimes. It didn't always work just like you wanted it to. And, so she uh, kind of had a, a mind of her own? And it, kind of a mind of her own. And so uh, it reminded him of uh, some lady he had known. And uh, so he started using the word Mabel for our machine. And that stuck. <laughs> Do you remember his name? Um, I don't right now. <laughs> okay. Okay. So Mabel was a, a phrase that was um, a nickname assigned to the machine by an, an early, if not your first employee. An yeah. early employee, one of the first ones to run the, yeah. the equipment. Right. So yeah. tell me about some of the, the mechanical challenges you had in designing. So for example, um, was there prior science or prior art in regards to deciding that it should be a rotary indexing machine? Or was that something that you, through practical application of mechanical knowledge, decided that would be the best way to devise the machine? You know, <clears throat> Bill, this goes back to a job I had in high school. And I was working at a bottling plant part-time in uh, Denver. And that machine was on a basically a rotary table that uh, put the bottles on the, feed it onto the table, and then add different things, the syrup and so on, and put the cap on and complete it. And that had some similarity Certainly, you to the way that we're going to have to. Between the process. Right. We're going to have different components and different things that had to be at, um, a part of the rocket engine. And so we, I decided that putting it on a rotary table with different stations that would do different things as the table rotated would be a good way to go. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's kind of the way we I got started on it. Was was Mabel a hydraulic machine or, or was, was she um, pneumatic? It was a, the uh, power to compress the uh, powder was the, by the use of hydraulics. And, um, and but the automation on it was all pneumatic or compressed air uh, so that valves would sense of the 
operation being completed and then advance on to do the next operation and so on. Um, the the uh, hydraulics was uh, that I used came, I guess you'd say, from a junkyard. Um, I uh, found a couple of power steering pumps uh, at a junkyard and um, uh, I rigged with two different motors. One of them would uh, use high volume, low pressure, and so it would move cylinders fast to get from one place to another. And then the other one then would switch in and put in the high pressure then to uh, do the final compression. Um, that was a very low cost way of getting to where I needed to be and, and it within my budget at the time. Mm -hmm. And um, the uh, rotating table, that was a piece of, uh, I found at another junkyard and, and so on. So it was assembled uh, more or less from uh, um, very inexpensive <laughs> uh, type equipment. And Mabel did a good job for a number of years, um, I think till about 1965, that was 58. And um, uh, our demands were just so great that Mabel couldn't keep up any longer. And so we started developing additional uh, equipment at that time. Mm -hmm. That was after we had moved to Penrose. Can you recall any of the, um, you, you seem to um, have a, a great recollection of the mechanics and design of the machine. I know one of the things in later years that for, for many decades after Mabel um, was difficult was the ejection of the, the pressed motor casing from the machine because the process of pressing the black powder into the paper casing expanded the casing um, and it always created difficulty in how do you get this expanded casing out of the, the vestibule that was holding it. So can you recall well, how you, you first solved that? Um. The first production, what I now refer to as Mabel One, the original, uh, didn't have any support for the casings. And so we had a relatively thick wall casing in order to uh, provide uh, support when you put high pressure uh, internally. Uh, the um, uh, next generation of building Mabel II, uh, we used a uh, clamping mechanism to clamp around the casing so that it could not expand. And that made a much smoother uh, external to the, to the uh, uh, rocket engine at that time. Uh, the original Mabel, the operation was basically would have, uh, it pick, had a a hopper where the tube would be picked up, be put on the machine, and the nozzle would, for material, the clay nozzle would uh, first be put in and compressed, and then there would be various stages of the black powder compressed uh, because you, you had to compress it in increments and you couldn't just fill the tube and compress it, it had to be done in increments and then the delay charge would be put in and compressed and ejection charge. And initially then we used 
a paper cap on the end. Uh, later, Mabel's used uh, just a clay cap on the end instead. But initially, we had the uh, um, had the paper cap. Then, as the engine was completed, then it would drop through a printer, and the uh, printing on the casing then that would designate the type of motor it was and, and so on. And, and that completed the operation. Okay. The the clamping mechanism that, that you described, was it something that, that kind of worked like this? Yeah. Hinged uh -huh. kind of clamping. that was, And uh, <clears throat> that was very effective in maintaining the outside diameter in spite of the relatively high pressures that had to be put on the internal compression. So with the description you've given of, of Mabel, I can, I can picture this uh, machine and a, a guy in a pair of a greasy overalls with an oil can <laughs> oiling and, and, and keeping her running. Did, did she have a unique sound? What did she sound like when she was operating? Well, um, Compressed air when you um, operate a valve, and you'll have an exhaust sound. So every time an operation would complete, you'd hear a sound there. And whenever the uh, the uh, tube feeder would operate, it would come down, make a kind of a banging noise. You'd hear the hydraulic motors hum and switch from high pressure to low pressure, and so on. It had a distinct sound. I, I don't have a sound recording. I <laughs> okay, well, I'm not going to ask you to, <laughs> to make the sounds. No, I, I wouldn't be very successful at that. <laughs> do, do you recall any um, early mishaps on the machine where um, perhaps you had an accidental ignition or something on the machine and how it happened and what you learned from it to, well, to correct it and make it more safe? We had um, an early accident in Denver. Gentleman that was running the equipment had something go wrong. We don't know the source why it went wrong, but there was on that machine there was quite a bit of powder, of black powder exposed in the containers there that were used uh, where the, the feed mechanisms were. He was severely burned. And uh, it took him quite a while for recovery. Uh, uh, and so at that point, we decided, well, we'll, we'll modify Mabel. Mm -hmm. And um, so we put different means of containing with vents out, uh, containing the powder. So it was loaded into something that would, if it did explode or something went wrong, it, all of the powder would vent out or the explosion would vent out through the roof, mm -hmm. through up pipes going up through the roof. But, and that, that was fairly satisfactory. But we did have John Schutz, he's the guy that invented the first model rocket glider, was working for us. We had the controls for turning Mabel on and off. We're on the outside of the building. We had made some new rules. Um, don't stay in the building when Mabel's running, plus all the venting and everything. Mm -hmm. And then one day the wind was blowing hard, and, and John was spending 
his time inside and nothing went wrong. He suffered minor injuries because what we had done solved a lot of that problem. But in our next generation of Mabels, we isolated it even further how the um, operator was separated from uh, any quantity of propellant. And now the, there was a uh, concrete barrier. Uh, the roof of the building was made of concrete, and the propellant was up on top. And the operator of the machine was in the building. And even if the, an explosion occurred or something went wrong in the powder, it would simply uh, make a big noise. And, the operator was quite safe. My recollection safe. was that the, the powder uh, was actually housed in a styrofoam building. It's in a styrofoam shack, if you will, or something on top. Right. It had a metal frame, styrofoam. Uh, and we did have some events occur that uh, uh, had the operator been there next to it rather than in the building where the machine was, it would have mm -hmm. been serious. So you went through several generations of Mabel. How many Mabels actually got made? I, I think it's seven. The original Mabel I would like to have kept for um, perhaps something for a museum or something. Mm -hmm. um, we were on a trip. I think we were in Europe or someplace at the time. And uh, we came back and it had been disposed of as a piece of junk, <laughs> went so to the junkyard. I, I'm assuming you're referring to it at that point that was uh, under Damon ownership? I think ownership? that's when Damon owned the company, yeah. right? Yeah, that was, it would have been in the 1970s. So seven machines producing a rocket engine every five seconds. Mm -hmm. Did you run 24-7? We ran 24-7. Thank you for tuning into this episode of The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. Special thanks to those of you who've supported the podcast financially. Your gift makes this show possible. You can become a donor by clicking on the yellow donate button at museumofflight.org podcast. Now, this is only a short snippet of Vern Estes's oral history. If you'd like to access the entire oral history, it's available in our archives, and details on how to request the oral history are in the show notes of this episode at museumofflight.org podcast, along with a link to all the oral histories currently available to stream for free 24-7. If you're interested in rocketry, we have a lot of rocketry-related items in our digital collection link in the show notes and of course our archives have even more available if you want to dive into some research the oral history collection is made possible by michael and mary k holman if you want more rocketry related podcast episodes i'll include a link to a recent episode where we talked about some of the great photos of rocketry meets in our collection and what's really interesting at least to me is that the information that we gathered for those photos about the photos themselves was crowdsourced directly from the rocketry community. 
And of course, we have several exhibits about rocketry here at the museum, especially in the Charles Shimoni Space Gallery. Check those out next time you visit. If you like what you heard, please rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you downloaded us from. It's the easiest way to support the show. You can also contact us at podcast at museumofflight.org. Until next time, this is your host, Sean Mobley, saying to everyone out there on that good earth, we'll see you out there, folks. <laughs>